If you like those movies where you have a, a hero and he's just unstoppable and no matter what the people who are fighting him try to do, they, they, they get some blows in and it has no effect and he just absolutely decimates them, then you should love Matthew chapter 22 because what you have is a series of events where people are trying to trap Jesus and trick him and catch him in something. And the Pharisees went first and they tried to capture him in saying something against Rome and uh, about taxes. They asked him a question about whether or not the Jewish people should pay taxes. And Jesus, it, the blow bounced off of him and he gave a wise and and uh, faithful response. And then the Sadducees came next and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they decided to trap Jesus with some complicated question about marriage and divorce and remarriage. If there is a resurrection, how is all of that going to work? And Jesus, again, threw the blow off and provided a wise and faithful response. And then the Pharisees, who, by the way, didn't like the Sadducees anyway, they said, well, it's our turn again, and that is where we get to the part of the text that Tamara just read. They send a lawyer, a lawyer not as we would think of a lawyer, but one who is an expert in the law of God, so to speak, and he attempts to trap Jesus with a question, and it's clear in the text, Matthew says, it is strictly to test him. It's to catch him in something. It's not because he wanted a genuine answer. But from this moment, from this moment where there is this lawyer trying to trap Jesus for the, for the sake of just being able to, to capture him in something that's being said so that they can get him in trouble and get him out of the way, Jesus presents to us the most important instruction in all of the Bible. Because the question he is asked is, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? We have all these commands, Jesus, and the law of Moses. We have the, the commandments that he was given. We have all of the instructions and the precepts that have been written and given throughout the Old Testament. What's the greatest? And Jesus answers the question directly. And he doesn't just answer with the terms, this is the greatest, but he says, this is the greatest and the first or the foremost. He quotes Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What is the foremost instruction in the Bible. What is the greatest command and principle that God ever gave? What is the most important thing for you to know that God expects from you in your life? And it is this, that you love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Jesus said this is the great and foremost of commands. If you're a note taker and you grabbed one of the worship guides this morning, and if it's helpful to you to 
as we go through the sermon to look at the, the notes and fill them in. Let's begin at the top. As we meditate on Jesus' teaching, that love for God is the most important command in the Bible, we must understand what he means by love. And the reason that I'm saying that, pausing for a moment in the notes, is because many different people have many different definitions of love. So if you were to say, what does it mean to love someone? What does it mean to have love for someone? You may get many, many different answers. And honestly, we use that word pretty liberally. I love my wife. I say that. I love my children. I say that. I love a good steak. I say that. I love the beach. I say that. Now, someone standing, I got an amen, someone standing from the outside and just listening to that language. Okay, what does David mean? He loves his wife, he loves his kids, he loves a steak, he loves the beach. Do I love all of those things in the same way? What do I mean by that when I say it? What do I mean when I say I love my wife? What do I mean when I say I love the beach? It's important to define terms. In our culture today, when we say God is a God of love, amen, but we need to define our terms. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how we define our terms. How does Jesus define that term? The beautiful thing is that we have a place earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, where I think Jesus gives us insight into what he means when he says to love God. Matthew 6, 24. I'll read you the text. Jesus makes this statement, no one can serve two masters. Okay, so understand that principle of Scripture. You cannot serve two masters. You will serve one. You may think you can serve many. You may think you can split your time. You may think you can split your heart. You can't. Jesus said, you're, at the end of the day, you're going to have one. You can't serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or... Look at what he says. He will be devoted to the one, despise the other. Now, he's talking there about God and money, but it's a principle that you can't serve two masters. And Jesus said you're going to love one or the other. And you're going to love one so much, you're really going to hate everything else. And then he uses the word devote or devotion. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. And I think that is language where he is stating the same thing in a different way. Hate and despising, love and devotion. What does the word devotion mean? In your notes, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus infers that love is expressed outwardly in devotion. The word devotion means to cling to something. When you are devoted to something or someone, it means you cling to it. You hold to it. You look to it. It also means that you work out a zealous care. In your heart, you have a zealous care for something, and you exercise that. You work it out. Here's a principle. People will hear you say what you love. They will see what you're devoted to. Love 
can be invisible. Devotion cannot be. People will see what you are devoted to. People will see what things you are devoted to. People will see who you are devoted to. And I believe Jesus is saying love and devotion hand in hand. Devotion is the outworking of what you love. Ask those around you, what do you see in my life? What am I devoted to? If someone was to speak to someone else and describe you, what would they say you're devoted to? You and I can say all day, I love this, I love that. But what, what do they see I'm devoted to? I hope they see that I love my wife and my children differently than I love the steak and a beach. Because I hope they see I'm devoted to them. So take that idea that love, which is invisible, is expressed outwardly in devotion. And let's ask the question, how is Jesus saying we are to love God? The first, foremost command in all of the Bible is to love God. So how are we supposed to do that? And Jesus tells us we are to love him, be devoted to him in three ways. Number one, with our soul. We are to love God. We are to be devoted to him with our soul. The word soul, it's talking about your core. It literally means the animal life. It's what makes you alive. It's the breath in you. And Jesus is saying, with that, love the Lord. Here's how I want you to think about it. It's your will. In your notes, your soul is your will to live. It's your will to want to be alive, to breathe, and to experience things. But it's also your will to live with purpose and meaning. You don't just want to live and be alive, yes, but you want to live and have purpose in life. You want your life to have meaning. You want it to mean something to other people, something to you. That's your soul. Now I'm going to skip the, the, uh, the next line, and we're going to come back to, to those, okay? So if you're taking notes, just skip down a line. How are we to love God? With our soul and then with our heart. With our heart. Jesus says with our soul and with our heart. What's your heart? That's your affections. It's the seat of your emotions. In your notes, it's your affections, it's your impulses and desires. Your heart has affections. You like things. You enjoy things. You have desires. You desire things in your life. You have emotional desires, mental desires. You have physical desires. They're your impulses. What you and I do, we don't just do things randomly. The Bible says it comes from our heart. We speak from our heart. We act from our heart. There's a few times in your life, there's a few times in your week when you will have the opportunity to say, okay, this, this moment is coming and this is going to be a tough moment and I'm going to have to react to this moment and I need to react in a godly way. 
be godly. I'm going to tell myself that. Okay, you may have a few moments like that in your week. Very few. Most of the time, you have seconds to decide how you're going to react to something. Most of the time, when, when a situation arises, when someone arises, and your emotions rise up in you, you have just seconds to decide how to act, and you don't even think about it. It's impulse. You act out of impulse. You act out of your heart. It's the seat of what we do. And we're to love God with our heart. Skip another line. Last one. Jesus said we're to love God with our mind. Our mind. What is our mind? It's, it's how we reason. It's our intellect. It's, we discern things. We reason. We chew things over. Logically, intellectually, we think about things. It's our reasoning, it's our meditation and our views. Our mind is our meditation. It's what we think upon. When you have a moment and you just sit down, let me just rest for a moment, where does your mind go? What do you spend a lot of your free time when when you don't have something that's been brought to your attention And do this, when your mind has its opportunities to just wander and rest, where does your mind go? What do you think upon? What do you meditate on? That tells you a lot about who you are. It also tells you a lot about what you will do. Because what you think about long enough, you will do. And and your mind is your views. It's how you see the world. Your mind, when you reason things out, And you meditate on things. It's how you view your life. It's how you view circumstances. It's how you view culture. Now, let's go back through each one of these asterisks because Jesus said that's that's how we're to love God. Our soul, our heart, our mind. So what does it mean to love God with your soul? What does it mean to express love for God in devotion to Him with your soul? Well, the way I'm presenting it to you this morning in your notes, it means we depend on God to meet our needs and we live out His plans for us. We depend on God to meet our needs. All right, go back to what I said. The soul is the core. It's the essence of who you are. It's your will to live. To love God with your soul means you look to God to live. You look to God to meet your needs. You look to God for life. He's everything. I'm going to depend on you, God. I'm not going to depend on anything else. I'm not going to depend on money to live, my career to live, a relationship to live. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to look to you to meet my needs. I'm going to run to you with every problem I have. And not only just to live, not only just my animalistic desire to live but also I want to live with meaning and purpose but God I'm not going to find my meaning and purpose in the world I'm going to look to you and God I'm going to say what's your meaning for me what's your purpose for me God give me your plans what are your plans for me God I'm going to love you that way that I take my desires to live and breathe And I'm going to look to you. And God, I'm going to love you so much with my soul that I'm going to look to you and say, give meaning to my life. I'm not going to find my meaning in what I do. I'm not going to find my meaning in a title. 
I'm not going to find my meaning in accomplishments and awards and notoriety. God, I'm going to find my meaning in you. That's to love God with your soul. How do you love God with your heart? Our heart, those affections, those impulses, those desires. We do everything we can to direct our heart to God. In your notes, we seek our joy in Him. Asking Him to give us right desires and expressing gratitude whenever we can. We seek our joy in Him. We ask for right desires and we express our gratitude. So what we're saying here is, God, I I have feelings. I have affections. There are things that I love. There's things that I have affection for. I have desires, God. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to direct my affections as much as I can toward you. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to find my joy in you. When, when, When the world hits and you feel depression and you, you feel anger, and you feel like your, your world is upset, where do you run to feel better? What do you do to feel better? It, that gives you some clue as to what you find your joy in, what you find your peace in. And it, it's not bad to, to say, well, I go take a walk, or I, I go work out, or I, I call a friend. I, those are not bad things. But when we love the Lord, we turn our affections to Him. We first and foremost seek our peace with Him. The first thing we do is we run to Him. We seek our joy in Him. If we go take a walk to be with Him, we go work out, it's out of this this body that He's gave us and this gift of just being able to go and do certain things to help feel better, we express our gratitude for Him in that. We look for Him in it. We call a friend up, it's because we think they'll point us to the Lord. We seek our joy in Him. We know that we have desires, so we take our desires before God and we say, God, give me the right ones. I want to love you with my heart. I want to seek my joy in you first. I want to find my peace in you first. Not in created things first, but in you first. God, I want I want to make sure that my desires line up with your word. And God, I'm going to express my gratitude to you constantly. How do you, how do you consummate joy? How do you confirm joy? How do you extend your joy? Part of the way that you do it is you tell other people about it. You go see a movie and you loved it. Oh, it was so good. Or you see a new show and you're like, ah, this this is so good. I love it. I find joy in it. What do you do? You tell people. You've got to see this movie. You've got to see this show. You've got to go to this restaurant with me. You've got to go to this place that I went. You've got to experience it. That is part of consummating our joy is expressing it. So one of the ways that we lead our heart to the Lord, we love God, is we express our gratitude to Him. We constantly look in ways to consummate the joy we have in the Lord by speaking it out, singing it out, shouting it out, sharing it with others. We love Him with our soul, we love Him with our heart, and then we love God with our mind. How do we do that? 
Our mind is our reasoning, our meditation, our views. Well, we think upon Him as often as we can. We think upon Him continually. Remember what I said a moment ago? Where does your mind go? Where where does your mind drift when you have time alone? Right before you fall asleep, when you first wake up in the morning? If you know me, listen, you know I love technology as much as the next person. I really do. But, But you... You guys know, we are training ourselves to have to constantly have something before us in our face to keep our attention and never let our minds wander or drift or imagine. There are times that we need to set it all down and meditate on the Lord. Think upon the Lord. Consider the Lord. Go for a walk, go for a drive, sit in your home, whatever it looks like to just think on Him, to train your mind to, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're trying to fall back to sleep, to pray. Wake up in the morning, express gratitude to God. Think upon Him continually. Rather than all the cares and concerns and created things think upon God that's how you love him with your mind and in your notes we think upon him continually and we ask for his mind to be our own so if with our mind we reason and we meditate on things and we have a view part of loving God certainly is God give me your view who cares what I think who cares what my opinion is Who cares how I see the world? God, I want to see the world the way you see the world. I want to see people the way you see people. I don't don't want to base how I view things on how I grew up or my experiences or how I've been trained. God, I want your mind. Give me your mind. That is how we love God, with our mind. Now, did I talk here about obedience? Do we love God with our obedience? Yes, we do. Absolutely. But don't you see that obedience is just devotion and action? If you try to get people to obey God without first loving God with their soul and their heart and their mind, it's not sincere obedience. It's the kind of obedience that they were doing in the Old Testament where they were bringing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And God looked at His people and He said, I'm, I got my feel of this. I mean, the altar always has something on it. You're doing all the things that I told you to do except love me. It's just religious routine that you're doing. God, does He desire us to obey Him? Yes. Are we to be righteous and holy as He is? Yes. But it starts with the foremost command. Love Him with your soul and your heart and your mind. Devote yourself to God with your soul and your heart and your mind and you will obey out of that devotion. Jesus in His Back and forth here with the Pharisees. He does more than just answer their question. He goes a little further than what they've asked. Because their question was nothing more than a backdrop for Jesus to share with his followers what he knew to be important. 
Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first command. This is the greatest and foremost command of God. And then there is a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus went beyond what they asked. He gives the great and foremost command, and then He tells them what they didn't ask. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think we talk about this in terms of the first great command and the second great command. Number one, number two, and and we can think of it that way. I'm not sure if it would be better if it wouldn't be better for us to think of it as a one and one B. The first one is foremost. Jesus made that very clear. The great and first command, love the Lord your God. But the second, he said, it's like it. It's not foremost. Oh, but it's, it's attached. It's close. It's right there. It is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So how are we to love our neighbor? We're to love God with all of our soul, heart, and mind. How are we to love our neighbor? In your notes, Jesus says we are to love our neighbor in the exact same way He assumes we already love ourselves. In the exact way, same way He assumes we love ourselves. Pause there for a moment. Jesus makes the assumption when He gives this command, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as you love yourself, His assumption is you love yourself. And He doesn't make any commentary that it's a bad thing. He simply says you love yourself, now love other people the way you love yourself. Now how do you love yourself? I say that we love ourselves with our soul, with our heart, and with our mind. We love ourselves because we want to live, and we want to live with meaning and purpose. We love ourselves because we have affections that we want to be met. We have impulses we want to do. We have desires that we want to receive. We love ourselves because we reason how the world should be. We meditate on what we think is important. And we view the world in a way that we think is ultimate. Do you see what Jesus did in the first command? He said, take how you love yourself and devote it all to God. Go to God first. Take your will to live to God. Take your desire to find purpose and meaning and go to God. Don't look look in the world. Take that love you have for yourself. Go to God with it. Take your heart. You love yourself. You have affections and desires. You want them to be met. You want to have joy by experiencing the things that you have affection for. Go to God with that. You have a mind... You reason and meditate and think on things and you love 
how you reason and you love how you view things. Now go to God with that and turn it over to Him. Be devoted to Him. Jesus takes how we already love ourselves and He says the first and most important command is love God with all of that. That you would center on yourself. Go to God with it. Turn it over to Him. Be devoted to Him. Soul, heart, and mind. And then He says, and now love other people that same way. The same way you love you, love them. In your notes, as we depend on God, as we turn those things over to Him, we seek the same things in the same ways for others. We seek the same things in the same ways for others. I hope, knowing that you... Most of you in this room that I know your background, you've been in church for a very long time. Some of you, your entire life. You've heard this. You've heard this text. You could repeat this. I hope this morning you are shocked at the radical command of Jesus. Do you see how He is telling you to love the people around you right now? Not just the people that birthed you or that you birthed or that you married, every person in this room, you are supposed to love them as much as you love yourself. What do you want for you? Do you want happiness and fulfillment? Do you want your needs to be met? Do you want to live? Do you want to have security? Do you want to have a warm home, good clothes, full belly? Do you want to taste good food? Do you want to rest and have leisure and vacation? Do you want the affections of your heart to be met? Do you want joy? Do you want to see all the desires and hopes and dreams that you have for your life fulfilled? Do you want to be In community, do you want to have friendships? Do you want to not be alone? Do you want to feel like you have others? Do you want to think on good things? Do you want to see the world rightly? Do you want that for yourself? The answer, church, is a resounding yes. You want that for yourself and you want it for the people in your family. Look around the room. If you dare, look around. Look at the people behind you. Look at the people beside you. Look at the people in front of you. Jesus said, want it for them as much as you want it for you. Love them that way. Want it for them as badly as you want it for you. Want the same things for them that you want for you. Want it in the same way. Don't just say, I, I, I want to be warm and well-fed with all of my being, and, and I hope they are too. No. Want it for them as much as you want it for you. That is a radical command. We have, we've heard it our whole life. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is radical what Jesus is calling us to. So when we go to God... And we say, God, I want to live. I want to live. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to have a long life. I want to live with purpose and meaning. And God, I want that for Kellen. Give it to him too. 
And we go to God and we say, I, I have affections. I, I want to enjoy life. I want to have leisure. I want to have friends. I want to feel a part of something. I don't want to be alone. I want my hopes and my dreams to be met. God, please give it to me. God, please let me desire the right things. God, I want Jenna to have it as well. Give it to her. We go to God with our mind. God, I want to reason. I want to think about You always. God, I want to see things the way You do. God, I don't want to think how I think. I want to think how You think. I want to meditate upon You and Your goodness. God, please help me to do that. And give that to Sam. Let Sam have the mind of Christ. Let Sam meditate on the things of God. We are to love our neighbor the way we love ourselves. Yes, the world, but especially the church. Especially the people around you. Especially the people he's put you in community with. In your notes, how is any of this possible? (laughs) How is any of this possible? Feel the weight of it. Feel it. I do. I don't perfectly love God with my soul, heart, and mind. I don't perfectly love all of you the way I love myself. How is it possible? In your notes, it is only possible by God's supernatural work in us, by His Spirit, through faith in Jesus. It is only by God's supernatural work in us, by His Spirit, through faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, the very beginning of the chapter, first five verses. Paul writes and says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. Let me pause there. You and I will never be able by an act of our will to perfectly love God with our soul, heart, and mind. It is a command that we cannot possibly hope to obey in perfection. You and I, by an act of our will, cannot love others, our neighbors, as we love ourselves. The people that are closest to us in our life that we have married, that are in our families, the people that, that, we would, that we love in an earthly way more than anyone else, we can't perfectly love them as we love ourselves. Expand it to the church. We can't do it by an act of the will. And that's what this means. Our flesh is too weak. And therefore, the greatest command we've all broken And the second one like it, we've all broken, and therefore we all stand before God condemned unless we're in Christ Jesus. And in Him, there is now no condemnation. Because God has done what we could not do. Continue reading. He has sent His Son 
His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Paul's, He condemned the fact that none of us can obey those commands perfectly. Rather than condemn us, He chose to condemn that sin in His Son on the cross. And anyone who believes in Jesus and looks to Him and trusts in Him, now there's no condemnation. Because, keep reading, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, and we could put now walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Only in Jesus and a transformation of our heart can we be set free from taking our love for ourselves and looking at created things and trying to be godly in our own power. Only in Christ can we stop that way of life and turn and start loving God with all of our soul and all of our heart and all of our mind. Only if we've placed our faith in Jesus is that possible. And when you placed your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God is now in you. And He is releasing you, albeit maybe slowly at times, but He is releasing you from living by the flesh. In a spiritual sense, it's done. You've been saved and glorified and you are not guilty. But in a sense of you still live in this world and you're still in the flesh, you're being sanctified. So your life is now a progression of loving God with your soul and heart and mind more and more and more and more as your life proceeds. Because more and more and more and more you are being released from living by the flesh and you're being granted the freedom to live by the Spirit. So that's how you take your love for self and take it to God. Now how do you love others? Romans 5, we'll back up a few chapters. One verse, Romans 5, 5. Second part of the verse, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love God has for your neighbor is poured into your heart when the Spirit of God comes into your life. And so just as you are learning to love God more and more and more, His love in you is spilling over and you are finding yourself loving others the way that you love yourself, the way that you want all those good things for you. That love is pouring over from your life into theirs. But now you don't just want them to have good earthly things. You want them to have good godly things. You want their souls to cry out to God. You want their hearts to be His. You want their minds to be His. It is impossible with us, but it is possible with God. We're in this series, What We Hold True. 
If you'll let me give you a silly illustration for a moment, our previous pastor, if you knew him, Chase, is a godly, godly man, serious about the Bible, sometimes rather silly in his communication. But he had a good illustration he always used about agape, and he would call us the good ship agape. He would picture us like this boat. And he would talk about it in a way of how important it is for us to lift ourselves and find the wind, the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is going, and let ourselves catch that breath of God and go in the direction that God wants us to go. So if you'll allow me to expand on that illustration, where I feel that we are as a church is that we have landed The wind has taken us and we have come onto dry land and what we are doing now is building a settlement. We're building a place, a base of operations and we are writing a charter. What is this place going to be about? What are we going to believe and what are we going to value now and in the future? For us and for people who come. For people we send out. That's what this series is about. What do we believe? We've looked at what we believe about salvation. We've looked at our core essential doctrines that we say, our statement of faith, that you should believe these things. To be a part of this church, these are the essential things to believe. We've talked about membership Last week, what is membership? Why is it important? Why should we do it? And now the rest of this series, today and five more weeks after today, we're looking at six values. The difference in the values and the beliefs is these are things that we really feel God has hammered home for this church. There's a lot of principles and values in Scripture, and we want to follow them all, but there are six that we believe the Lord has said we will value in this church, part of our charter, if you will. And the first one is this. We value adherence to the great commandments in their proper order. In this church, we value loving God with all of our soul, heart, and mind, and we value loving our neighbor as ourselves in the proper order. So the application for agape, how do we take what we've just talked about and apply it? Now there's a personal application, so I hope you see that. It starts with you. Love the Lord your God with all of your soul and heart and mind and love your neighbor as yourself but now we're talking about the corporate entity of agape we're talking about the church we're going back to what we talked about last week it's a non-negotiable be together be in a local church so this is our church this is our charter so now we need to think about how do we do this corporately and why do we need to do this corporately in your notes the critical nature of these commands show why they must be part of our core values. The critical nature of what Jesus said in Matthew 22 reveals to us why we can't have six values as a church without this one being first. So look at the last verse in Matthew 22 that Tamara read. The great and first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at what he says in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. The law and the prophets is the Bible. The word depend literally means to hang on. So I'm going to give you an illustration that's not mine. Imagine for a moment that you could picture the Bible as a scroll like they had in the Old Testament. And it is, it is rolled out. And over here at the very beginning of that scroll is Genesis and what God has told us about creation and the beginning of time as He wants us to know it. And all the way through, every story, every instruction, every command, everything that God has done in human history, everything He has done for the redemption of man, up into the birth of Jesus, and the life of Christ, and His death, and His resurrection, and the birth of the church, and all the way through the beginning of the church, and into Revelation to the end. Imagine all of it laid out, and then imagine two gold chains holding that scroll. And if you could follow those chains all the way up, and if you could picture in your mind those chains attached to the throne of God, and on one side, the first and foremost command, love the Lord your God. And on the second, it's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The love of God, His glory, His promotion of Himself, His glorification of Himself, it's the most important being in all the universe to worship and love Him and His love for people. The love for the whole world. Everything in the redemption story of the Bible hinges on those two commands. Love God. Love one another. We can't have a value or stated values of a church because, without mentioning this, because every possible thing that we could talk about as a church hinges and depends on loving God with our heart, soul, and mind, and loving one another as we love ourselves. So in your notes, the application for agape is these have to be part of our values, and we must keep them in proper order. By prioritizing times of corporate worship and prayer, we must keep them in proper order by prioritizing times of corporate worship and prayer, and then the Lord will bring sincere connectedness. I'm going to pause there before I finish, and let me explain what I mean. I don't want to lose you here at the end, because I think this is ultra important for us. How do you do church? How should we do church? What? What does it look like to flip the commands? What does it look like to get them out of priority? What if we were to say, here's what we have to do. We got to make sure everyone that comes in this church connects with one another. We got to get them together. We got to get them to like each other, love each other. We got to talk about how important that is. We need to find ways they can connect. We need to, we need to, Maybe we, can, maybe we can group them. We can find people that like to do 
this certain thing and get them together, and, and we can get some other people that like to do this certain thing, we can get them together, and, and we can start really building community. Or maybe, maybe, because people kind of like being with people that are like themselves, so maybe we can get people that are kind of in this age group over here. Let's get them together. Let's get people that are in this season of life, get them together. Let's go over here to this, pe- this group that's in a further season of life. Let's get them together. Let's build unity. Let's build connectedness in the church. And then if we do that, then we can worship together. Then we can pray together. Then we can study the Bible together. Then we can go on mission together. Do you see that that's flipped? But do you see that's how sometimes we think? We go into a church and we say, let me figure out if I connect here. Let me figure out if I feel at home here. Let me figure out if if I had somebody, they're not here anymore so I can share the story, but they came to me and they said, we want to join the church. And I said, that's awesome. I'm so thankful that you, you want to be a part of this church. And they say, yeah, well, they say, well, we found our people. And I, I just, in my mind, I hope I didn't make the face, but in my mind, I went, ah, oh, that's not good. Now, is it good to find your people? I don't really know what we mean by that, but is it good to find your community and your group? Yeah, yes. I want everybody here to feel connected and at home. But when you join the church because you found your people, guess what happens when you get mad at those people? Guess what happens when those people change a little bit? Now, now you got to go find another church. By the way, they never made it to the new members class. They got upset and left. But anyway, here's how we keep it in the right order. We prioritize being together. Worshiping God. We prioritize being together, praying together. And guess what God does? When his people come together and they worship and they pray, he connects them. Is it a slow connection? Is it a harder connection? Yes. Will I bank my being a pastor on it? I am. We may not grow as fast, we may not grow as big, but I am banking. That if we prioritize coming together and loving God together and making it a priority in our time, in our week, to come together to sing to the Lord and pray to the Lord and listen to the Lord, I am banking that if we do that, the Spirit of God and the love of God will overflow out of us over to others and we will find the deepest and best kinds of connection. The kind based on love for the Lord. We went, I, we went uh, Thursday night to a worship gathering. Probably should call it a Christian concert. I don't think it was a concert. I haven't been to anything like that in years, probably 12 years. I didn't know what to expect. And so we go into this room, and, and we're in this big auditorium, and we sing. We start singing. These three artists are there and singing these songs. And, and here's, here's what happened. I had the most amazing experience worshiping God. And there were times where we were worshiping God with all these hundreds and hundreds of people and they're singing at the top of their voice. And I stopped singing in certain moments of the, of the gathering and I just listened to other people singing. 
And there was a kid sitting next to me I never met before in my life, but he was praising God so hard. And I thought, man, I love this guy. I don't know him, don't know his name, may never see him again. There was a lady behind me weeping, singing about Jesus. Weeping. And someone had their arm around her, and I felt connected to her. And I've never seen those people before, and I may never see them again, but in that moment I felt connected to them. And I went home and I said, God, give us that at Agape on a Sunday morning. Every Sunday, let us come together and sing and worship with energy and strength and connect us. And you know what? I felt it this morning. I did. I hope you did. I felt it this morning. That's how we build this church. That's how the Spirit of God builds this church. But that's what we set our minds to. The last blank there. From that connectedness, we will do works of sacrificial service for one another. What I'm banking on, Agape, is that if we prioritize being together to worship and pray, I am banking the Lord will connect us by His Spirit, and I am banking that out of that connectedness, we will start, I will say, continue doing amazing acts of sacrificial service for one another. Because we will find it's not enough for us just to go and say, Lord, meet their needs. But we will go, Lord, how do I meet their needs? How do I become your hands and your feet? How do I help them? How do I serve them? I'm banking if we truly value this as a church, and it's going to take every single one of us. But I'm banking if we will prioritize being together. And getting together for worship and prayer and His Word, I'm banking this will happen And what Jesus said in John 13 will be true of us. They will know Agape Church belongs to Jesus because we love one another the way He loved us.